that you have called imperfect people like us to gather in your name and that you receive us and welcome us, that it is a joyful thing to you that your people gather to hear your voice and to declare your goodness. So be merciful to us this day, Lord God, and we praise you. We thank you for all who are who are here and, and for those also who are unable to be here for whatever reasons. Lord, as we've seen various natural disasters around just the country, fires in California, of course, Hurricane Ida, Lord, I know that as a result, um, our disaster relief resources are growing thin. So we pray, Father God, I know that human resources as well as material resources are are challenged. And so we pray, Father God, for those who are on the front lines of disaster relief, helping people recover, dig out from from flooded areas, remove trees that have uh, perhaps fallen on houses, um, and just uh, people who have evacuated, restoring communication. People are without power. Lord, I pray that you would... Um, Give our disaster relief volunteers encouragement and strength. We thank you for them, Lord God. We pray, Father God, that regardless of our political opinions, we have refugees coming into our country, Lord God, and we thank you, Father, that um, that we can help in that, those regards and Afghan refugees as well as others are coming into our country. They are arriving here, and I pray, Father God, that we are able to welcome them and that they will see the grace and beauty and love of Christ, that they would see that you are all-sufficient and all-glorious and all-beautiful and worthy of all praise and glory and honor and that they would fall on their knees and call upon your name. I pray, Father God, that churches who are helping out in those areas, Lord God, that you'd give them grace. Finally, Lord, I lift up the children of our church to you, Lord. And uh, I'm grateful for the kids that are here. I thank you, Lord, for that you would bless them and help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, that they would love you above all things. And at the first possible moment, Lord, that they would confess you and be saved. So we thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy. And we pray for the parents. I know that many times they're stretched thin. And pray, Lord God, that you would uh, strengthen and keep them. So, Lord, we're grateful for the church that you've given us. Help us to, to honor you this day and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, 
testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own head. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names, your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla, and Aquila. Today we uh, begin a study in 1 Corinthians, and I thought it would be important that we understand how they're how a church came to be in Corinth. And we see this in Acts chapter 18. How did the church get established in um, uh, in Corinth? So just a little bit of background. I'm not going to give great detail on the background of Corinth today. Um, but as we go through the book, we'll add some details about the background. But we should know a few things um, before we get started. First of all, as we see... Paul planted the church in Corinth. This was actually on his second missionary journey. So you recall, Paul um, had three missionary journeys, and then, of course, his his trip to Rome. But on his second missionary journey, in Acts chapter 18, he he founds the church um, here in Corinth. And this was after facing incredible opposition in other cities and in in other towns. Uh, Of course, when he came across to Macedonia, he went to Philippi. And there he got chased out. Um, he he he, he uh, meets uh, some Lydia and some women down by the river. They basically had a prayer meeting, and he preaches the gospel. And Lydia and her household come to know Christ. Of course, he gets chased out of Philippi, and he goes to Thessalonica, and he preaches the gospel there. And of course, he gets run out of town at Thessalonica, and then he goes to Berea. And at Berea, the people were no, more noble, but some folks came down from Thessalonica, chased him out of Berea. Then he goes to Athens and, well, you know, gets chased out of Athens. And then he comes to Corinth, probably around 50, 51 A.D. And and you might say, well, how in the world do you know that it was in 50 or 51 A.D.? Did you notice in our text there's a key date um, or a key reference? And that is that Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. We know when that happened. 
All right. So Paul's probably in Corinth around 50, 51 AD. Um, and he stayed 18 months or so a year and a half. There and um, so you can understand when we get to First Corinthians in chapter two, verse three, Paul says, "And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling." Yeah, because you've just been run out of all these other towns and been beaten up a couple of times, and so yeah, so he comes to Corinth in great with fear and trembling, and this is where Christ appears to him and says, "Don't be afraid. Go on preaching. I have many people in this city." And so um, Paul is in Corinth. Um, probably just tired, and Christ um, refreshes him personally, gives him um, two friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers and believers, and they go on, and Paul refreshed them, or God refreshed Paul with this friendship. So that's the uh, the general uh, background of how this church gets started. Paul then returns, he leaves Corinth, and he returns um, back to Asia on his third missionary journey, and he comes back to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, it's probably in Ephesus around 54 A.D. or so that Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians from the town of Ephesus. More likely, that's where he wrote it from. Um, a couple things that we should note before we get into the the first letter of Corinthians. This is actually Paul's second letter to the to the church. He had written them a letter before. You'll see that in chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul writes that he, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So I've already written to you about certain things. He wrote a letter that was not well received. It was a harsh letter. As we go through, we'll see this. It was a harsh letter and it was misunderstood. And so... Um, uh, while he is at Ephesus, he receives some correspondence from a, a family, a, a group named Chloe's people um, that is referred to in, um, in chapter 1, verse 11. You'll see this. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So, so, so Paul is getting reports of things that are going on in Corinth, and he's responding, and we have one of his letters. Um, and 1 Corinthians is then the first letter that we have of Paul to this church, and he is going to talk to them about some of the the issues that are being reported to him um, from Chloe's people. Some of the things that he's going to address are questions. Lots of different issues are coming up, but some of the things that we're going to see are questions about ethics and morality, um, questions about marriage, um, and, you know, should we be married? Um, what if an unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage? What about that? He, he's receiving uh, correspondence from Chloe's people that the, the Corinthians are actually suing one another in the court of law. And he's like, going, wait a second, what are you guys doing? How come you, you're so divided that you're actually taking one another to court? So he writes about lawsuits. Um, he writes about matters of conscience. We'll talk about that in chapter 8. Um, the ordinances, the Lord's Supper. He writes it to the, the Corinthian people about proper, um, 
partaking of the Lord's Supper because it had been corrupted. He talks to him about spiritual gifts. And it actually in chapter 15, he gives us perhaps the most comprehensive understanding of the resurrection of Christ in all of Scripture. So chapter 15 is huge um, for us. So in other words, there's all sorts of things going on, and um, you'll see this throughout... Um, um, Throughout the book, you'll, you'll see like in chapter 8, now concerning foods offered to idols. In other words, probably Chloe's people said, you know, we have this issue with foods being offered to, uh, to idols. And Paul now, when he gets to chapter 8, says, now concerning that issue, concerning the thing that you wrote to me, I'm going to now address that. So all sorts of problems are in Corinth. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of a messy church to say the least. One of the things we also know about Corinth is that it had a couple of really good pastors. Well, they had Paul, probably a pretty good pastor, um, for 18 months. We know Apollos went there and, and preached. And perhaps Peter? Peter was there, we know that. Well, we don't know, but we can surmise that Peter was probably there because when we get into the the issue with divisions, people are saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. So perhaps Peter was actually there at some point in time and people are saying, oh, um, the guy, the, the celebrity pastor that I love is Peter. And somebody else says, no, 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 the celebrity pastor that we should follow is Paul. No, 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 those guys are good, but Apollos is your guy. If you really want the word of God. So so we have these this disunity and this division in the church over who's the best pastor? Who should we follow? And then, of course, you have the really religious people. I just follow Christ. I'm really, really spiritual. So the church is kind of a mess. That's a bit of a background. Are you with me so far? As we go through this, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue on dealing with this. So that's, um, that's some of the, the basic background. But here what we have is we have a church. How do you live as a church in a corrupt culture? I think that's kind of the big question. How do we live as a church in a corrupt culture? And I don't know why those slides didn't change, but That's weird. But I'm not going to worry about the slides. There it is. One of the great things that that I'm that I like about studying First Corinthians is its cultural nearness, I guess. I could describe it as cultural nearness. In other words, um, it is culturally similar to us. We have some some very um we're not so distant. Let me give you an example. By Let me just explain the, the opposite. Cultural distance. So when we're in the book of Numbers, that's a, that is a book that we probably have very, very little in common with. We are looking at a group of people, Bronze Age people who are nomads living in the desert and in tents with really uh, under a theocracy. You and I have never lived in that type of a situation. We are, quote, modern people living um, 
in a completely different type of economic system. We are not, most of us, I don't think any of us are nomads. We all have homes. We don't live in an ancient Bronze Age um, environment. And so that's what I mean by cultural distance. And one of the, one of the tasks of a, of somebody who's studying the Bible is to learn how to bridge that gap. And sometimes that gap is huge. Like when we're in the book of Numbers, sacrificial systems, killing animals, setting guards around the tabernacle, all of these things are, are so foreign to us. And so one of the challenges of anybody who's teaching or um, trying to understand the Bible is to understand that there is a big gap in cultures between us and the people who are who were the original audience. Corinthians, though, doesn't have that big of a gap because Corinth is very similar to our day and age. In fact, some people have considered the Corinthian, the, the, the city of Corinth, much like perhaps Las Vegas or Bangkok or one of these great melting pot cities. You see, in... Corinth, the people were upwardly mobile. They were aspirational. They desired to get ahead. They valued and permitted um, economic advancement. So if you were born in the lower rungs of society, um, you were encouraged and you would be given opportunity to advance and perhaps uh, uh, lift your social standing to the upper rungs of society. So they valued and permitted economic advancement. The pursuit of success was valued. Education, trade, being an entrepreneur, having the right connections, not simply um, having the right knowledge, but knowing the right people. These were the types of things. So you, you kind of um, schmoozed the, uh, the elite so that you might be able to garner favor from people who were in positions to garner favor. So this was, it's like, oh, well, that sounds a lot like us today. I'm pretty, that, that makes sense to me. So they were a upwardly mobile group of people. They were cosmopolitan. That is, um, uh, one author described them as a rootless city, not ruthless, root, no roots. They are pluralistic, so every citizen had a plethora of religious traditions from which to choose. Um, We could choose, I mean, religious ideas were flowing in and out because of where Corinth was located. They were a, uh, they were a, a port city. So ships were coming from the east, ships were coming from the west, Trade and merchants were coming from Asia and from Africa and from Western Europe and from uh, all over the known world at that time. And they were all converging in Corinth. So it was a cosmopolitan city. It was also a very individualistic city. One commentator, I think, wrote this, and it's in your notes. It says, In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. In other words, listen, I am the captain of my destiny. I am the the master of my own ship. I determine where I go and what I do. I have no God or gods over me. I am 
I am the one who determines where I go. So they were individualistic, they were cosmopolitan, and they were aspirational or upwardly mobile. And so it is into this culture then that Paul is writing this letter. This is the environment in which Paul writes. So you can see when we read, or you can understand when we read in Acts chapter 18, that Paul preaches there for 18 months and then he leaves. And when he leaves, the culture, that environment, creeps into the church and begins to impact what is being taught and what is being believed in this church. And it is so all sorts of problems. And it doesn't take very long. You figure if Paul writes this in about 54 AD, it's maybe three or four years before all of this pollution has gathered into the church. So just a couple of problems in Corinth, and then we'll actually get into the text. Some of the problems are issues of morality. They actually celebrate immorality, and Paul is saying, uh, no, stop that. Ego is a major issue. People think that they are superior to their brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm a little bit better than you. I know you're a Christian, but I'm a notch above you. Just so you know. Not to hurt your feelings, just tell them the truth. Tribalism, um, elitism, so kind of this tribalistic idea. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. Listen, my guy I like best, he's just a little bit better than you, than your guy. So this, this elite, there's elitism, there is some errant teaching that is going on. Um, and really disunity. This is why I've entitled the entire series, United We Stand. Because disunity is a big, big thing. The church is divided. And I think what we see are we see, is that we see symptoms of their division. We see symptoms of the problem. The problem is that they've left their first love. They've abandoned their first love. Remember in, in uh, John writes, um, well, Jesus writes to seven churches, in the book of Revelation, and the first church he writes to is Ephesus. And he says, listen, Ephesus, you've got a lot going for you. You are a really good church. You've got all of these things going for you, but here's your problem. You've left your first love. I think Corinth, the Corinthians, have left their first love, and as a result, they do not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore, they do not love their neighbor as their se- as themselves. And so they are selfish. They are divided. They think that they are they are egotistic. They have all of these things stem from the fact that they have abandoned their first love. And so despite all of these problems, Paul is actually going to begin this letter on a very encouraging note. So here's how I've outlined uh, the remainder of this, this study. I want to look at the sender. Who are the senders of this letter? Who are the recipients of the letter? And who... And then the final blessing that Paul pronounces upon the people of Corinth. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Listen to the inerrant word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to our brother Sosthenes, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, we're looking at the senders. Who is the senders? Well, Paul. So let's talk a little bit about Paul, how Paul identifies himself. Paul identifies himself, first of all, as an apostle. So let's make sure that we define our terms and make sure we understand what is an apostle. And then we'll talk a little bit about why Paul identifies himself in this way. So what is an apostle? Well, the word just simply means a sent one. And in the Bible, apostle is used in a broad sense and a narrow sense. In the broad sense, lots of people who got sent out from the church to proclaim the gospel might have been called apostles. But in the narrow sense and in the sense that it's being used here, um, it speaks of one of the twelve, really, one of the people who... Uh, Follow Christ who saw the risen Christ. But here's where I want to go with this. Really an apostle is an emissary of another. He is an emissary of somebody else. So he comes in somebody else's name bearing a message. In this case, Paul says, I am an apostle, not of Caesar, not of some Roman governor, not of some uh, senator. I am an emissary of Jesus Christ himself. So Paul, by saying that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, is declaring a certain authority. In fact, as we see here, um, a person who, uh, an apostle then is a person who bears the authority of another. As we see David Garland saying, the one whom a man sends is like the man himself. So when Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is saying, I come with the full authority of Jesus Christ himself. He sent me. My words are his words. This is an amazing statement that I come as an apostle. My words are the very words of the one who sent me. The things I say are the things that the one who sent me told me to say. He is speaking the very words of Christ. This was one of the things then that Jesus often says. He says, um, Jesus talks about the, the Father who sent me. Uses the exact same word. In other words, when Jesus comes speaking, he's saying, I'm coming speaking the authority of heaven. God the Father sent me and I am like him. I bear his authority. I bear his words. In fact, in John chapter 13, 20, this is what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you get that? Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. If you reject me, you reject the one who sent me. If you reject my words and my actions, you reject God the Father himself. So this is an important word. It's an important title. Paul says, I come with the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, he did not only, an apostle did not only come with the words speaking um, authoritatively, 
but He also comes in action. In other words, not only are you to listen to my words because they bear the authority of the one who sent me, but I imitate the one who sent me. And you'll see this throughout the book of of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think in your notes I put verse 6, but it's actually verse 16, where Paul says this, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's an amazing statement, and we'll unpack that when we get there. I urge you therefore, be imitators of me. Wow. Why? Because I am imitating Christ. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul writes this, he says, Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what it means to be an apostle. It means to speak the very word of the one who sent you, in this case, Jesus Christ, and to imitate the one who sent you. This is why Paul says, imitate me. I'm an apostle. These words are coming to those who are following their own personal beliefs. They are following the words of uh, some folks who have crept into the church, who claim to be elite, who claim to be something. Um, there are, especially when we get into Second Corinthians, there are these so-called super apostles, and the Corinthians lifted them up and say, "Oh, these guys are so great. Um, they they speak so eloquently, and their gift of rhetoric is off the charts." And you, Paul, you're kind of not that great of a speaker and you don't really carry yourself all that well and I don't know if we should listen to you and Paul is coming forth and saying, no, I have been sent by Jesus Christ himself. These super apostles are not, have not been sent by Christ. So in this narrow sense, there are no apostles today. They do not exist. Nobody can come along and say, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. That I bear that authority to speak the very words of God. Now, I know there are plenty of churches who will say, well, our guy is is an apostle. He is not an apostle. Not in this narrow sense. He does not come with this authority. If you are at a church that has an apostle, you should question that. Because apostleship is conferred, and we're going to talk about this. I'm getting ahead of myself. so. So in this sense, there are no apostles today. Like I said, some people claim, and I think that if I go to a certain person and pay him a fee and pay a yearly maintenance fee, I could be an apostle. But apostleship is conferred by God. It is not ordained by men. Now, we want to ask, why is Paul saying this? Is Paul just some arrogant guy who wants to lift up titles and say, hey, look at me, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, Woohoo! Paul is asserting his authority. Because there were people who were undermining Paul. And Paul is coming in and he is asserting his authority. I know what I'm saying and I ought to be listened to. It would be similar to this. You go to a, you go to a conference or you go to a, um, a seminar and the person speaking and let's just say it's on, I don't know, whatever. Church administration or whatever. This person has a PhD, three PhDs in church administration, has written X amount of peer-reviewed articles and has a book. Well, you might say, okay, well, 
They're not just saying that to brag about the person. They're saying it is that you should listen to this person. They have a certain level of authority. It would be, I don't know, if somebody asked me to speak at a conference about pastoring urban churches, I'm probably not your guy. I have never pastored an urban church. I don't know much about urban ministry. Maybe a little bit. I've read some books. But I'm probably not your guy. If I were going to talk about rural church pastoring, I have a little, I got 21 years and I got some experience. I probably got something to say on that. So Paul is speaking and saying, listen, I have the authority to speak the very words of Jesus Christ about these issues. So when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, when it comes to sexual morality, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, when it comes to lawsuits, when it comes to how we behave in the church, when it comes to all of these things, you should listen to me. The next thing we want to note is that Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle. And I gave you homework yesterday. I don't know if any of you saw the homework, but I I ask you to note how many times this word call is used in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And here's number one. Paul called by the will of God to do what? To be an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ was not a career path decision for the, for Paul. Nor was it a position conferred by a human authority or an ecclesiastical body, a church body. So nobody came up and Paul didn't go to some group and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to kind of be that, that, do that apostle thing, so what do I do? Well, first of all, you gotta to go to class, you gotta to get, to go to school and get a PhD in apostleship, and then we'll confer it upon you, and we'll put the hood on you, and you'll be the, the apostle, or whatever else. Like I said, today, people, you, you pay enough money, and you pay your yearly dues, you too can be an apostle. Paul is saying, called by the will of God, called. Not by any human authority, no church body conferred this upon me. So what does this mean to be called? Well, this is a very, very precise word. Um, And so let's look at it closely. The idea here is to be captured and constrained by God's sovereign will so that he becomes something he was not. Let me repeat that. It's in your notes, but let me repeat that. Captured and constrained by God's sovereign will so that he becomes something he was not. To be called is to be captured by God, by the sovereign God so that now you are something other than what you were before. That's what it means to be called. We're going to use that definition as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. So the call of God is a work of God that actually changes the heart. The call, this type of call, has an effect. It actually does something. It actually produces an effect. In Paul, it produced two effects. Number one, the call transferred him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Or it saved him. And it also conferred upon him an apostleship, a calling. 
In other words, this call of God is a work that actually changes the heart. The call has an effect. The call is able to overcome all resistance. This is not an invitation. So when Paul is captured on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't appear to him and say, now listen, I I got this gift for you. And the gift is, you know, if you want to be an apostle, I'm offering it to you. And if you want to be an apostle, that would be awesome. Your life would be better. You will be happy. You will be more fulfilled. It is not an invitation. It is God changing Paul's heart and transforming him into something else. It is still a gift, but it is a gift then that overcomes all resistance. So Paul's not going, well, maybe that sounds like, can I mull it over for a few days, Jesus? No. Paul is captured by the sovereign God and that, that, that call changes Paul from one thing into another. It changes Paul from a persecuting, Christ-hating, despiser of the church into a man who is captured by Christ. His heart is changed and he is now a spokesperson for the living Christ. Before I hated Christ and wanted to snuff out the message, today I am a messenger of Christ. Yesterday I despised Christ and his church. Today I'm a part of that church and I love everything about the risen Lord. What he was has been changed by the call of God That's what we mean. And you will note that he is called how? By the will of God. This was God's will. Paul didn't, Paul was not seeking Christ. He was not looking for Christ. He was looking for Christians to to bring them back for trial that they might be imprisoned or killed. But he wasn't looking for Christ. And so the call of God overcame all of Paul's resistance so that now he is a follower of Christ and more specifically, he has a task to do and that task is to proclaim the message of the risen Lord. This was all by the will of God. So Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I like how he's... Identified. He's just the brother. Now we don't know if this is the same guy that we saw in Acts chapter 8, 18, verse 17. I think it is. I think there's strong reasons to believe these two are the same, the same people, but we don't know that for a fact. So anyways, there's our first greeting. The recipients, or the senders. The senders are Paul and Sosthenes, the brother. All right. Good so far? The recipients, let's talk about who the recipients are. <clears throat> wow. First Corinthians, getting into a letter of an epistle of Paul is so different from Numbers. Numbers, I would read the chapter and look for a big theme and hopefully come up with something. And here every word is ripe. We could spend hours on every single word. But the recipients, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, let's just stop. 
First of all, the recipients, the church of God in Corinth. I want us to focus on this idea. This is another, church is another key word in the letter. So when we're going through the book of First Corinthians, the church is huge. Now, it's a messed up church, but it's still a huge, still an important theme in the entire book. But note that it is the church of God. First of all, this idea of church has its roots in the Old Testament. The Old Testament assembly that uh, um, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, it would use this the Greek word for church to describe the assembly. An assembly that gathered to meet with God and hear his words. And you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. You'll see this idea of God's people meeting to meet with, gathering to meet with God and to hear his word. So when Paul says the church of God, the church are people who are God's people gathered in his name to hear what he has to say. And we will note also of God that is a possessive. In other words, the church belongs to God. It belongs to nobody else but God. The church of Corinth was God's church. It was not Peter's church or Cephas or Apollos' church or Paul's church or anybody else. The church did not belong to the super, the so-called super apostles. The church belongs to God. The church on Randall Place belongs to God Almighty. We have elders here. They, we are under shepherds. It does not belong to us. It is God's church. He has commissioned and I suppose qualified certain individuals to help lead the church, but we are accountable to God Almighty because it is his church. It does not belong to us and it doesn't belong to any human person. The church is God's church. Note who the members of this church are, the church of God that is in Corinth. Notice how Paul then emphasizes who they are to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The members of this church are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This word just simply has the idea to be made holy or set apart. Again, it has Old Testament roots. Leviticus 19.2 Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord your God. Now, If you're sleeping, wake up. Because what I'm about to say may put you to sleep, but I think it's important. And that is this idea of those who were sanctified. Now, in, in our English text, that's a past tense. People who were sanctified, set apart, made holy at some point in the past. In the Greek, that's not so. It's something different. It does have a past tense. It is, a, it is an event that happened in the past, but has present day reality. So it happened in the past, this event. You were made holy at some event, at some point in time in the past, and you are still holy to this day. And it continues on into the future. So who are the members of the church? The church are those who have been sanctified, set apart, made holy by Christ at some event, at some point in time in the past. And today you are still set apart and holy to God. You 
You should also note that this is an act performed by another. In other words, you did not make yourself holy. You did not sanctify yourself in the past and you are not sanctifying yourself today. God did this. At some point in the past, He set you apart and called you holy. And you are now today set apart by Christ. And in the future, that reality will persist until He comes again. That is who is a member of this church. That is the member, that is who are members of any church. There are no unbelievers. You cannot be an unbeliever and be part of God's church. In fact, this marks a fundamental identity of the Christian gathering. In the past, there was a divisive, a decisive break with the old way of life and acceptance of a new life has now come. This is what happens when we become Christians. When we become Christians, there is a decisive break with the past. I am no longer who I was. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, and now I am somebody different. I am sanctified. I have been made holy. Did you get that? Because then Paul, this is not redundant. Then Paul says, called to be saints. See that word again, called? That's our second time we've seen this word. That is, you are called to belong to God. The calling to be sanctified has a terminus. It has an end. And that is holiness to God. This is a divine call. It is an effectual call. In other words, this call has an effect. You are called by God to be saints. And that call has an effect. In other words, you actually become saints. That's actually what happens. God called you and you actually are saints. Not potentially Not probably, not maybe someday in the future, but no, right now, today, you, because of what Christ has done for you in the past, you are a saint. There is this new identity. You are what you were not. What you were in the past is no longer who you are. You are now somebody else. It is a new identity. It is not an identity rooted in performance. You are new creations. Your identity and purpose was bestowed. It is bestowed upon them. It is not manufactured. Sainthood is not manufactured. It is given by God. So, we could say that saint and Christian are synonymous. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. So if I were to get up here next week and say, hello, saints, you'd respond, hello. Now, this differs, say, from um, the Roman church and the Eastern church, where sainthood is um, conferred upon certain individuals who are especially um, holy in their lives. I know in the Roman church, it would be those also, you need to perform a miracle. In the Eastern church, you don't have to perform a miracle. But these are people who are especially holy. That is not a biblical definition. It is nowhere found in the biblical, in, in the biblical record. I would encourage you, if you hold to that view, just go to the internet and look up Strong's Concordance and then just look up the word saint. And note what it says. A saint is a Christian. All of y'all, if you are confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, y'all are saints. Going, I don't feel like a saint. Well, 
Look at who he's talking to. The Corinthians. These guys are a mess. Utter, complete mess. You're saints. What? These guys are saints? Yup. That is, the idea of a saint is one saint is set apart for God's purpose. A saint is somebody who's just been set apart by God. I should say by God for God. You're holy. The word sanctified and saint come from the same word group, holy. You are holy. Just think about that. You are holy to God. Why? What did he do? He called you. He made you something that you weren't. You were not a saint. You were a sinner and he made you a saint. You were a rebel and he now made you a citizen. You were alienated and you are now a son or a daughter of the Most High God. This is what happens when you were born again. This is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to this church and it has such incredible applications for us. So now then, Paul expands his vision, called, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul now goes into a, a the bigger picture. In other words, you are set up, you are not set apart as solo saints, but you are joined to a larger community. So this idea of individualism within the church, drop it. Second of all, within the entire universal worldwide church, there are other people, there are other saints, and there are other church. Believe it or not, this may shock you, there are other godly churches other than Church on Randall Place. I, I know. But there are men and women who are gathered all over the all over the world who are gathered in the name of the risen Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul is saying this. I think he's kind of a um, kind of a shot across the bow of what he's going to be talking about. Listen, y'all aren't. You guys are a church, but just remember, there are all sorts of other God-fearing churches all over the place. You, Corinth, are not God's only child. So stop acting like somehow you are something. Remember, independence was a major idol for the Corinthians. It was a source of their conflict. Um, but Paul is saying, you do not possess Christ by yourself. Christ has saved a whole lot of folks other than you. And you are brothers and sisters with them as well. So there are no solo saints. They don't exist. They are all joined together in a community and there are many godly communities um, around the world. So there are, we've looked at the, the senders, we've looked at the recipients, um, and we'll now look at the blessing. Grace and peace, and I won't spend a lot of time here. I, I know that word, that sentence means nothing, but um, grace and peace to you. I, you know, when a preacher says, this won't take long, that means nothing. But we'll see. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Lots of ways we can unpack this, but I think one of the things we're seeing here is grace and peace emphasizes the comprehensive work of God. 
That is gracious, God's gracious giving of salvation and the cessation of hostility. In other words, God has poured out his grace upon you and blessed you and given you salvation and therefore you have peace with God. There is no hostility. God is not your enemy. You are not alienated from God. That has, that, that has been reconciled. Grace is the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. I want you to understand that grace is the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. It recalls God's generous action regardless of the recipient's achievement. I think there was a big kind of an ecumenical meeting many, many years ago. And all of the people from various religions were gathered together. Hindu, Buddhist, Shinto, Taoist, Muslim. And the question was asked, is there any anything in any of the, these religions that is unique? Well, we all lo- are supposed to love our neighbor, okay? Well, we're all to um, be kind, okay? Well, they couldn't find it. And actually, I think it was C.S. Lewis who spoke up, and he said, yeah, the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith is grace. And they discussed it and said, Grace is the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. That is, a person is saved as a gift of God's... It is a gift from God. It is not merited. It is not earned. You don't get it because you got baptized when you were a kid or you said a prayer when you were 12. You did not get it because you took communion today or last week. It is not conferred upon you because you did a good deed or your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, which they probably don't. But that is not grace. That is merit. And the distinguishing, one of the distinguishing marks, I think there are two distinguishing marks of the Christian faith. Number one, Jesus is God and that we are saved by grace. You are not saved by any merit of your own because you are a good person or you go to church or you're a preacher or whatever. You are saved by God's grace. It is an undeserved gift. Peace is then the outflow of that. Because God has bestowed his grace on you, he is no longer your enemy. He is now your friend. Better yet, he is your father who loves you. When we talk about the peace of God, that presupposes that there was an earlier time of rebellion that has now been reconciled. We were at one time enemies of God. We now have peace with God. Why? Because of God's gift that is his grace that was poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me uh, conclude with this. This is a church that has been infected by the culture. It is individualistic and it is performance-based. And Paul is going to strike at the very heart of that individualism and that performance orientation. And Paul begins, he's going to have some really harsh words, really harsh words. But he's going to begin with an, but he begins with an encouraging word. And he begins by asserting his authority. Listen, I have the right to speak into your lives. I have the right to say these things. What I'm saying is what Christ is saying. That's an amazing claim. And he is remind, he's going to remind them who they truly are. 
You are saints. You are sanctified. You are set apart. You and everybody else who has received grace, you are set apart by God. I want you to think about that. I want you to remember how you got to where you were. I want you to remember where you were as as idolaters and how now you've come and, and, and enemies of God and how you are now worshipers of the true and living God and he is your friend. Paul begins with this. I hope that we can take some of these things with us. If you take some things with you, I would hope that you would remember that you've been set apart in, in Christ Jesus. You are saints by calling, not by anything you've done, but because God has called you. And that to you, you are, if you are a Christian, you have received grace, unmerited favor by God, and he is now your father. Father, come, we come before you this day. We thank you. We praise you for the word that you've given to us. Lord, there's so much here. I pray, Father God, that you would um, make these words applicable to us, that they would find a place in our hearts, that they might encourage us through the week, perhaps challenge us or even exhort us or admonish us, that we might live out the calling that you've given to us. And so we thank you for your church. I thank you for the church on Randall Place, a place where men and women gather to meet with you and hear your voice. So be merciful to us this day. Bless and keep us in Christ's name. Amen.
Man, I just want to remind you and invite you to the fellowship meal down at the uh, um, Ramadas. Man, sit with somebody else or move around, meet new people, hang out with other people. And with that, let's go ahead. Uh, we'll bless one another. I think it's on the bottom of your bulletin. And that is grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.